Lord Christ, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning, for you are the King who is coming. And we ought to hear from you this morning, we ask. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So some of you have heard me talk about my Uncle Harold before. Uh, he's a, he passed away uh, this last summer. He's a dear, dear man uh, who I love and who I miss very, very much. Uh, he means a lot to me and my family, and I could talk all day about just how lovely of a person Uncle Harold was. Shortly after he passed away, I had a, a very vivid dream of him. Uh, you see, Uncle Harold, they, they had a, a beach home uh, over in, in Seattle, in that area, on, a, on an island there. And they didn't own the island. That'd be pretty cool. But <laughs> uh, So they had a beach home there. And I remember when I was my kids' ages, uh, I would walk up along the, the beach, and we would dig for clams. And this dream was just like that. Uh, I was with Uncle Harold, we were walking down the beach, and we would look for the little spits of water that would shoot through the air, indicating that that's where a clam was, and we were talking. And I don't remember exactly what the conversation was, uh, but I just remember thinking, man, this is, this is it, like hanging out with Uncle Harold, digging for clams on this beautiful like summer August day in Seattle. It was truly amazing. But then I woke up. And you know what that feeling is like when you wake up from a dream like that? And you just feel so confused at first because you think, is this real? You know, you've got this fog and your mind's not totally awake yet. And you're like, you know, part of you actually is saying, yes, that was totally real. And then there's part of you that's saying, no, that's, that's not. And I remember waking up just feeling like a victim of some kind of robbery or something. Like something good and precious had been taken from me. And I desperately wanted to go back to that, to that place, to that dream. Well, Advent, my friends, is a very strange season. It sort of feels like we're waking up from a dream. You see, we just concluded about, you know, six months or so of ordinary time. We've had the green banners up. Uh, ordinary time was a blast this summer. We read passages about God healing people. We learned about his parables. Uh, we heard reports from missionaries who came, hearing about exciting things going on around the world. And here at a church, we did a ton of potlucks, you know, or uh, picnics outside at the picnic tables there. I can't imagine doing that today. I'm glad our potluck is going to be here in this nice warm place. I remember baptizing Emma down at the lake. You know, it was so much fun. We had a wonderful season of ordinary time. And then this last month, we've been preaching through Restoration's Values. And then last week, we celebrated Christ the King. And Molly preached this amazing sermon, sort of exemplifying what it, what it means to, to recognize Christ as our King, that he is worthy of our contemplation and who we follow out into mission. And so then, today, we wake up. And there's a few inches of snow on the ground. It's slippery out there. It seems like some people maybe got stuck on the way, that, on the way to church this morning. And then we come into the sanctuary and we don't have the bright, life sort of like green color. Now it's purple, a little bit more solemn. And it's like I said, we're, oh, and now we're singing songs sort of yearning for the king to come. All the songs kind of have that sort of ring to them, right? So like I said, Advent is a bit of a strange season. And in many ways, Advent is emblematic of the entire Christian life. 
This is sort of how we sit or how we walk throughout our entire lives as Christians. We walk like someone who's been waking from a dream. Christians walking this earth, remembering true experiences with our king, but yet looking around, seeing that there's still a lot of work to be done. Things are not quite right. Theologians refer to this as the already and not yet tension. We're longing for the, the royal sacredness of Christ to be applied to all things. It's also a little confusing because our society calls this Christmas time, you know, and they, we, we go places and there's lots of like bells that are being rung. Uh, we're told to smile more often. We play music that has bells in it as well, you know. But this isn't Christmas time yet. This is Advent. And this is a season where we desire the return of the king. And you probably heard that from the passages that we read, right? Like a lot of this was sort of gleaning or like jumping out from these passages. These passages are meant to stir our desires for the king, to know that he's coming. They're, They're meant to teach us how to live in that tension of the already and not yet. Now, the answer that the scriptures give to us on how to deal and navigate with this tension is the concept of hope, the concept of hope. And in our gospel reading from Luke, Jesus himself gives us a lot of hope. He gives us abundant, merciful, bright, and joy-filled, powerful hope in these passages. But my guess is as you were hearing them being read, hope maybe wasn't the first word that came to your mind. We're hearing about the destruction of the temple. We're hearing about stars and moons and stuff like this sort of changing shapes and colors and crashing to the earth. It's a peculiar way to talk about hope, isn't it? But what I would like to do this morning is kind of walk us through these two different paragraphs from the, the gospel passage. First, the first paragraph we're going to look at is kind of what I would say is the focus of our hope. And the second paragraph is going to be the power of our hope. And both of these, like I said, are strange passages to our modern ears, but both contain a huge dosage of hope. So, the first uh, paragraph. The passage begins by saying that some were speaking of the temple, and it's, you know, we don't want to immediately jump to the conclusion that this was the disciples, per se. It could have been some of the other Jews uh, who had been following Jesus as well. But so there are some Jews, and they're admiring all the beautiful stones and the artwork that were sort of embedded in the wall of the temple, all the craftsmanship that had been um, poured into that. They probably saw a beautiful sportsmanship code hanging on the wall, and they're like, oh, isn't this temple great, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? He says, this is all coming down. There won't be one concrete block upon another soon. And this was absolutely rattling to the Jews. You see, for them, the temple wasn't just the center of their country. It was the center of the world. It was the culmination of the entire salvation history as far as they were concerned. This was the building in which the, the God Almighty lived. That's where his presence was. And for Jesus to say, this is all coming down, that is quite a startling statement. And they're absolutely aghast. You know, they ask Jesus, what in the world do you mean by this? And we, I, I cut some of the verses out of here, but Jesus goes and tells them a lot of the details of what's going to happen. And it is a terrifying, terrifying experience. So what in the world does that have to do with hope? 
right? Like that's a pretty scary passage. So what in the world does this have to do with hope? Well, I've got two, two things. First of all, it's kind of a simple thing. And perhaps we take this for granted. But what Jesus says will happen actually happens. Like it actually comes true, right? And I think that's, that's kind of hard for us to see because we kind of take that for granted sometimes. But this came true in 70 AD, the Romans came responding to a Jewish rebellion, surrounded the city, lit it all f- on fire and burned the whole thing down. The temple truly was destroyed. And this, this fight, this battle was led by a man whose name was Titus. And Titus eventually became the Roman emperor. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, that arch of victory that he erected in Rome, or I'm sorry, in Jerusalem, is still there. It's still there, sort of reminding everyone that that temple is gone, that his victory was complete. And again, like I said, this is sometimes hard for us to grasp as moderns, right? Because we think of Jesus as this like mythic figure who lived 2,000 years ago and espoused some, some beautiful wisdom and stuff. But this is the fact, is that in 30 AD, he said that this was going to happen, and then 40 years later, it happened. This earth-rattling event occurred that no one could have imagined. So the second thing of why this is a a hopeful passage for us is because God wants to make sure that there is no confusion for his people of where to place their hope. You see, we don't place our hope in systems of sacrifice. You see, friends, the atonement of all the world's sin had already, will, (laughs) according to this passage, will already, but as we know, All the atonement of the world's sin happened at the cross of Christ. And now his spirit has been poured out upon us and dwells within the the hearts of his people. In other words, our hope is not placed in whatever we make or grow or bring or invent or whatever else that we might muster up and bring to a location to God's holy city. But instead, our hope is in the man Jesus Christ who was condemned to death by the rulers of that temple and was put to death outside the temple gates. That is where our hope belongs. We focus our hope upon Jesus, the Messiah. So now let us turn to that second paragraph. This is the power of hope. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. And the powers of heaven will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man sitting in a cloud with power and great glory. See, Jesus is painting quite a terrible, terrifying picture of the close of all of human history. This is apocalyptic um, imagery that Jesus is employing here. It's a rich mix of symbols and poetry, all of which are being pulled from the Old Testament. He's speaking like one of the true Old Testament prophets. So if you've heard stories of people who've been through some of the worst parts of World War II, specifically as their cities are being sieged and taken, you'll probably realize that the language that they use to describe those events sort of fails them at points, right? And they have to resort to to metaphor. The whole earth was shaking, they might say. The sky was on fire. The sun became black. And this is what we hear in Jesus' words. The sun, the moon, and the stars themselves are in distress. Nations are being shaken. 
Kingdoms of the world are being completely undone. And then the Son of Man himself, Jesus Christ, is riding in the clouds. Now this doesn't mean that, that Jesus is somehow like actually flying in the sky. You know, that's, that's not immediately what he wants us to see. No, what he's doing is he's, call, he's hearkening back to the power of God in the Old Testament. When God would come down and reveal himself through the cloud, where he would lead his people through the wilderness in the cloud, when he would deliver the law in a cloud, which he would pour judgment out upon the nations in a cloud. What we see is that Jesus himself is taking upon him that authority, and that when he comes again, he will come as judge and as king at the close of the age. And this is the final chapter of all of scripture. When sin is completely gutted from the world, and this will be a great and mighty thing, Satan will be vanquished, the righteous will be vindicated, and suffering will be no more. And then elsewhere in scripture, we know that this culminates with a wonderful feast, right? A great feast in which heaven and earth will meet together, in which a new age begins, And as surely as the fact as the temple was leveled, this too will happen. This too will happen. So, as moderns, sometimes we we think that there's only one way in which an event actually happens. This is a little hard to describe, so bear with me here. But according to uh, theologian Justo Gonzalez, there's actually two ways that an event can happen. So the first way is simple cause and effect, okay? So take the example of like hitting a billiards ball, you know, sort of playing pool. So you, you strike one ball and then it moves and it hits another and you can kind of trace that action backwards, right? So the ball moves because it's pushed by the cue ball, which is pushed by the stick, which is pushed by your arm, which is pushed by your shoulder, so on and so forth, right? And this is kind of the primary way that we as, as enlightened people think of acts actually happening. You could say that things are happening because they were pushed by a prior action in the past, right? A causes B, which causes D, so on and so forth. But there's a second way in which things happen as well. Let's say that you're an author, and there's, you have this hope or this intention of publishing a book, okay? Well, the book isn't simply going to write itself, right? You actually have to have that goal of publishing. And it's that goal of publishing that pulls you into writing each chapter and each paragraph and each sentence. It's that hope of publishing, or without that hope of publishing, those words wouldn't be written, right? So the Bible talks about this as as a telos, or as an end, or a goal, or when something has a purpose. And this is a second way in which things can happen. Maybe you're familiar with the language of when the Bible says, this happened in order that this might follow. You see, things happen not just because other things happened before it, but sometimes they happen because they have a purpose to them, that there's a direction to them, that there's an end to them, and they're being called forth into that end. And you see, when God, the author of history, desires something, all the events of history sort of bend and flow towards his desires, towards his final end. And here's the remarkable thing. He plants his will for these things within our hearts as well. And he invites us to partake in helping bring this world that we find ourselves towards that greater end that he paints for us. And this is what we see happening throughout church history, right? 
You know, as we look back through church history, we see God's redemptive future stretching back and accomplishing things. We see glimmers of hope and restoration and beauty and goodness all throughout the history of the world. Such as things as like the invention of the hospital or the abolition of slavery or other sort of things that the church has led the charge with. Yes, obviously bad things do happen in the world. That's obviously undeniable. That shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us is the fact that we are seeing glimmers of heaven within our histories. So here's the thing. What if our dreams of Uncle Harold, not that you're drinking, dreaming of Uncle Harold, that'd be weird, but of your loved ones, right? Like what if those dreams that you have to be reunited with your loved ones? Or what if those dreams that you have for, for even greater things like justice and peace and truth, what if those don't come from a distant sort of fanciful dream that you've had? But what if instead you carry those dreams and, and desires because instead they come from a real future that is unfolding even within your heart? Because those are coming from promises from Scripture itself. You see, we yearn for the restoration of all things, friends, because God is, is calling us forth into that. He's giving us a glimmer of what will happen. A few weeks ago, I heard Brian Stevenson talk, and he, and he spoke about hope as being the Christian's superpower. And I'll end with this, and I just, it's kind of goofy language, but hope is our superpower, right? And at the end of our passage, Jesus concludes by saying, stand up, for your redemption is drawing near. Doesn't that just grip your heart, right? Stand up, for your redemption is drawing near. And that is exactly what we celebrate here in Advent. You see, Advent isn't just a passive wallowing around in a waiting room, looking at your clock, waiting for the king to come. No, Advent is an active declaration that we have met the king, that he has placed his spirit within us, and he is coming again. And we get to call forth, we get to come together here and partake in that that unfolding of that dream. And we get to turn to our neighbors and invite them to come and taste of this as well. So with that in mind, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you because what you have said will happen, both in the past and in the future. I pray, Lord, for each one of us who've gathered here this morning that we would see the future that you are calling us into and that we would live in accordance to that. In your name, through your grace, and for your glory. Amen.